Hello and welcome to the Viasat Podcast. I'm Alex Miller with Corporate Communications. And the topic for this episode is orbital debris, also known as space pollution. It's an issue of great concern for the satellite industry, and we're happy to have Viasat Executive Chairman Mark Dankberg here to walk us through his views on the subject. So thanks a lot for being on the podcast today, Mark. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So um, can you start by describing what we mean by orbital debris and what it is and, and the threat that it poses? Okay. So... Yeah, the first thing is, if you think of all the stuff in space, you can divide it into two categories. One is things that are actually being useful, especially satellites for sensing or communications. Rockets, at some point, they were useful because they were delivering something, but if they're still up in space, anything that's up in space that's not being used is considered to be debris. And even within the debris, that is stuff that's just not useful anymore. There's kind of two classes. One are, let's say, a spent rocket that is just orbiting the Earth and is still intact. But there's another form of debris that's actually a lot more dangerous, and that is fragments of stuff that used to be useful and aren't anymore. And those fragments can occur because of problem like, like an explosion on board a, uh, a piece of uh, a spent rocket or a, or a satellite that's in orbit, and that causes it to fragment and creates a debris field. Or the other thing, and this is the one that's the, the, that's really raising concerns now, are when some of these debris things crash into each other, they're going at many thousands of miles an hour. And so even little tiny fragments like paint flecks can totally destroy other things that are in space, whether they're other fragments or intact spent things like satellites or rockets. So all that stuff is debris, but the the stuff that's especially dangerous are these fragments. And you know, one of the best uh, ways to visualize that was from a movie Gravity that came out a few years ago. It showed what happened when, you know, uh, just a whole bunch of collection of junk was going near the space station and what the impacts of that would be. Now what you have to visualize is, is that these debris fields are, you know, they can stretch for hundreds of kilometers in multiple directions. And especially these fragments are, are the most dangerous things. You could think of them as like, if you're, if you're doing target practice and you've got a rifle or a, or a pistol and you're trying to shoot a can on a stump, you know, you, you have to have pretty good aim to do it from a distance. But if you're using uh, a shotgun right. with buckshot, you don't have to be very accurate. It's pretty hard to avoid that debris. And that is, that's the big threat. Okay. So um, I've, I've heard you speak about this before. And one of the things you mentioned was something called the Kessler syndrome, which uh, is sort of a worst case scenario. So I was wondering if, what does that refer to? Okay. So the Kessler syndrome is... It describes a situation where the debris propagates itself and become, and it basically grows without bound. That, that is that you, you can start with, let's say, these fragments and you have a relatively small amount, but if the fragments start crashing into each other and break into more fragments, what you have is, is a positive feedback loop where the number of fragments continues to grow. And that's what's called the Kessler syndrome. It, it can make it so that certain regions of space are basically so densely populated with these fragments that, that they're inaccessible. And the, the thing that's, that's really uh, concerning now is uh, don't think of the Kessler syndrome as an event 
so much as think of it as a process by which these debris fragments crash into each other and create more debris. And especially that's especially a problem at altitudes where those small fragments can stay in orbit for decades or 100 years or more. And that debris propagation effect is already happening. I mean, we can see, you can see that in a low Earth orbit. You can see it in reports from European Space Agency or private companies that are monitoring debris. That, that we're not at the point where it's going to propagate without bound, uh, but it's it's propagating. The, the notion that this debris will interact with other uh, pieces of debris and form more debris, that, that's what's happening now. Right. And so when they're crashing into each other, they're they're moving into different altitudes and, and orbits and potentially screwing up several different altitudes. Right. Just think of it as big, bigger fragments making small fragments uh, and that those smaller fragments are dispersed over wider and wider areas. And just to put things in perspective, you know, a fragment that's an inch in diameter can completely shatter a satellite. Uh, so that that you know because it's going at such a high speed you think about what happens when a little pebble hits your windshield at 70 miles an hour think of what would happen if that pebble hit your windshield at a thousand miles an hour or ten thousand miles an hour and you get a sense of of what the the issues are right right so you know it's it's probably stands to reason that these risks of space pollution have been around pretty much since the the start of the satellite era but the 2020s are looking to be a decade of of even more concern so i was wondering if you can you can speak about why that is the case yeah the main the main reason that it's more of a concern now is that there's more and more uh satellites being launched that's that's the biggest the single biggest source of concern and instead of people launching one or 10 or maybe 50 or 60 satellites in a constellation. Now we're talking about hundreds and thousands and even tens of thousands. So adding that much active uh, items to space creates a much greater problem for the, the orbital debris problem because those active things can end up being stuck in space or they can fragment. And, and that's what the, the real concern is. Right. So, so in addition to the, the, just the sheer number of these, these satellites going up, there's a, there's a, a failure rate that's some, somewhat can be predicted or anticipated. So what are the, what are they like in these, uh, in these mega constellations? Well, so there's uh, different issues there. There's one problem, which is even if, uh, people are, are intending to design satellites with uh, high reliability. Space is very difficult, and, that, and that's a hard hard problem. But it's the problem's exacerbated with these very large constellations because uh, some of the operators can, can think of this as uh, a, a failure is tolerable, that I've got so many satellites up there that you know, if I have a, if I have ten thousand of them and a hundred of them fail, I've still got ninety nine percent of the capability in my constellation. So that doesn't really matter that much to me, to my, to my service or to my customers. But it would matter a lot to uh, to space safety because those failed satellites now become uh, at risk of creating more debris. So what we've seen so far is failure rates in the percentage, you know, single digit percents for, for the largest constellations of, uh, 
you know, hundreds of satellites, which is basically the, the SpaceX Starlink one is the, the one that has the most satellites in orbit now and has had uh, the most failures of, of any uh, constellation as well. Right. And, and there's a pretty good recent example of this I've, I've heard you mention. It was a, a Chinese satellite that had struck uh, another satellite. It was, it was a few years back. So, uh, so one of the reasons that th- there is a lot of concern about this is there have been a couple of of uh, collisions and one that has been that people have studied a lot is a collision between an iridium satellite and a a defunct russian satellite which collided and and it's pretty interesting because we we the u.s government tracks orbital debris and what what they look for are things called conjunctions which is uh, an incident when two pieces, two objects come close to each other, close enough to where a collision is possible. And so in this case, it was an active Iridium satellite and a uh, defunct uh, uh, Russian Cosmos satellite. And even though they were coming close, it was thought that there was enough margin there that they wouldn't collide. But in fact, they did. And that created thousands of, of uh, additional debris items which scattered over this, you know, hundreds of kilometers of orbit orbital altitude. So that that's one example. And then the other main example is an anti-satellite test where a satellite at a similar altitude was intentionally destroyed in order to test an anti-satellite weapon. And that also created large debris field, which is still tracked. So those, those are two examples of what would happen you know if you do have uh, collisions in space yeah it almost reminds me of the whole you know wearing your mask in covid times it's like it's not just about you know your own satellite but it's it's a shared space that uh, you know can affect a lot of different satellites right that's one of the biggest concerns here is that number one is even if you have large constellations that are confined to relatively low orbital altitudes if there were to be a failure uh, and that that did result in a collision, or if, if there's just a collision uh, as in with Iridium, where uh, even though the collision was unlikely, it occurred, that that can affect orbital altitudes, hundreds of kilometers, both above and below you. So everybody has got to be concerned about this if you're in anywhere near any of these orbits. Uh, because it's you're you're taking risks not just for yourself but for everybody else, and then this notion that the debris can propagate means that the risks are much more serious than than just a, that of a single collision. So you know, I've heard you uh, recently. You talked about how this this issue is kind of a, a complex intersection of physics, politics, law, business, diplomacy, and and also regulation. And so, in the U.S., the the FCC has raised the topic of orbital debris, uh, particularly in relation to these mega constellations. So, uh, what has the commission done so far to address this? Well, the, the f- first thing that they did, uh, and this was, goes back uh, over two years ago, is they raised the issue that in when you have very very large constellations, that you ought to be treating the the collision risk for the constellation as a whole instead of just considering that of an individual satellite. So the the main point of that would be, for instance, if you look at a company called Analytical Graphics, has, has looked at 
all of the applications for low earth orbit communication systems. And then what they've done is they've, they've done their own analysis about what the collision risks might be. And, and essentially they did that by looking at how many conjunctions would occur and how close those conjunctions are and which satellites from which constellations would be involved in those conjunctions. And the, the gist of their analysis is that there are, let's say, call it, you know, dozen, a few dozen constellations. So any individual constellation might represent one or two percent of all the constellations that would be launched. But the largest constellation, which is the SpaceX one, would represent over 90 percent of the risk that there would be a a collision in space. So the, the obvious point of that is that Purpose, a constellation is supposed to serve some mission. It's supposed to do something. In, in the case of SpaceX and Starlink, it's a communications constellation, but there can be others for, uh, for other missions as well. The point is that if you use large amounts of satellites to do that and take up large amounts of orbital space or resources or orbital trajectories or inclinations, then you're raising the risk for everybody. And what the FCC is proposed is that we ought to evaluate those risks based on an entire constellation. And then they asked for comment around that. So that's what's happened so far. It's interesting that I think it's taken a while for a number of, of players in space to understand these risks and to pay attention to them. A lot of them, a lot of individual companies, whether they're manufacturers or operators or component providers, tend to think of these regulations in terms of what does it mean for me? What what has taken a little while is for people to realize uh, this has a big impact on space as a whole, and that is what has an impact on me. So right now the, the FCC is evaluating comments, but there's been a growing consensus that, that that they're on the right track, that this is that there needs to be a way of dealing with the risk that's posed by constellations as a whole. And the, and the only ones that have been the, the ones that object to that are the ones that are proposing the largest constellations, which is not super surprising. Right. And they're actively launching more and more satellites. So uh, did the commission anticipate this? The, you know, the regulations as they existed seemed to make sense when the largest constellations ever proposed were you know, on the order of hundreds of satellites. But it's just in the last three or four years that people have started proposing thousands of satellites and and trying to sort of create the impression that the more satellites, the better. When from a space safety risk, it's it's the opposite. The more satellites there are, the more risk there is. And that's why the FCC conditioned the grants of authority for the systems that have been licensed uh, on a future rulemaking. So it's considering new rules and everybody that's licensed will be subject to those rules. And now you're seeing other regulatory agencies start to consider the impacts of that. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, it's clearly a global problem. So, I mean, what what do you think the FCC and, and similar agencies around the world uh, should, should do next to, uh, to rein it in? Well, yeah, your point that this is a global problem is absolutely correct. And you know, if you, you can look at what's happened in space, and that is when one country comes up with some system or application in space that, that's really effective, 
you know, all, all the other spacefaring countries generally will say, well, well, I need that too. One of the best examples would be look at what's happened with a global positioning system where in theory, you really only need one good global positioning system that everybody in the world could use. But once the U.S. had one, now you've got, you know, there's a European version, a Russian version, a Chinese version, there will be more versions. Same thing with uh, observation satellites and the same will be true of communication satellites as well. So what that means is that each regulatory agency in, around the world needs to consider not just the population of satellites that will be filed in its jurisdiction or want access to its country, but what's going to happen as a whole. On the other hand, if, if there's a race to the bottom and every country says, well, I'm going to do the things that are good for me and not, not good for everybody else, it's only going to court disaster. So uh, what you've seen in the past is that the, the, the world has been able to come up with rules that are uh, fair and scalable for things like orbital slots or how, you know, how to manage access to space. And I think that's, what, that's what's needed now, uh, both for international organizations like the ITU, but also for individual spacefaring countries that uh, that'll have an in influence on how this plays out. I think we're seeing, we're already seeing heightened interest. I think the main issue is, can the regulators catch up to the launchers, right? That, that can we get to the point where the regulations uh, are anticipating the problem and, and that we haven't already put many thousands of, of unreliable satellites in space and created a lot of risk. Right. You know, following from that, I was wondering, does it, does it seem to you like some of these projects are being rushed into service at the expense of, of you know, the safety and the future of space? Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I think that the idea is for some of them, you, you, there's, so there's multiple aspects to this. One aspect is that the space safety or the orbital debris regulations aren't caught up, but there's other regulations that have to do with sharing space and access to orbits that haven't caught up either. And in some sense, I think that you're seeing some, you know, operators just saying, hey, I'm going to, if I get thousands of satellites up before the, the uh, regulations catch up, that'll give me some advantage, which I think is not, that's not a good dynamic at all. Uh, so I think that the regulators need to get ahead of that as well and prevent that situation. Right. So, you know, uh, most of the these constellations we're talking about are in low Earth orbits of, you know, just a, a couple hundred miles up, whereas uh, Viasat's primary satellites are in geostationary orbit, like 22,300 miles or so up. So how much of, uh, you know, a risk to, does, to these kinds of collisions in low Earth orbit potentially posed to, to our satellites? Well, the the risk of those debris fields uh, getting up to the altitudes that geosynchronous satellites are at is low. The issue is, and, and you've seen some of the rocket companies, launch companies point this out, is that the more debris there is in low Earth orbit, the greater the risk there is in just transiting those orbits you know, the velocities that that these the debris fragments are traveling at, that you can create a minefield for, you know, for a, a geosatellite to have to traverse to get to its orbit. The other thing that's also kind of interesting here is the debris risk in geosynchronous orbit is somewhat similar to, but different than what's going on in LEOs. One of the things you hear about every once in a while 
it, maybe once every 10 or 20 years as a satellite might fail at a geosynchronous orbit in a way where it can't maintain its location and it starts drifting with respect to other satellites in the geosynchronous arc and it represents a collision risk. And that's the analogous problem that happens at LEO. One of the things that I think is gives some comfort that I think that the that the regulatory agencies around the world will deal with the LEO problem is that that there is a way to deal with that, right? That there are regulations on the reliability and quality of satellites and, and the station keeping that you need, which everybody has realized if we don't all agree with these, all of our satellites at GEO are, are at risk. And so that, that situation has been managed uh, pretty successfully. It's not zero risk, but it's a manageable risk. And I, and I think that that the experience at GEO gives us some hope that that the LEO situation can be worked out as well. Okay. So um, I know I've heard you speak a little bit about, uh, you know, your thoughts on how how can, a, in addition to regulations, how can a, a LEO constellation be operated more safely uh, and, and still be profitable? What's interesting is that the largest number of uh, LEO filings are for communication satellites. And think about what the mission of communication satellites is is it's, it's to provide bandwidth, provide connectivity. So we know that we can make a space safer if we have fewer satellites. So fewer satellites have fewer conjunctions or fewer lower failure risks. There's a number of ways that just having fewer satellites uh, makes, the, makes the environment safer. So the most obvious thing to do would be to figure out how to get more bandwidth per satellite and then to just get the same amount of bandwidth, be able to offer the same service to customers with, with, with less risk to space. And, and what we believe is just like you find in other uh, things where you're trying to preserve the environment is often being safer and uh, creating less pollution is actually going to be less expensive as well. It's more, going to be more economical. And it also uh, will allow more competition in space as well because it'll leave room for, for more different constellations. So that's the, the most obvious and simplest thing to do is just to, to make the satellites better, to, to ha- allow them to have more capacity. And, that, and that's actually our approach, uh, because what we think is uh, it, it is more economical, it's certainly, more, it's certainly safer, and we think it sets a good example for what uh, other uh, operators can do as well. So uh, I know that uh, you know while all of our satellites are currently in those those geosynchronous orbits, we're also thinking about a Leo constellation uh, in the future. So how would is that the way we would we would approach it is with less satellites? Yes, uh, yeah. I mean the the main advantage and probably the only real advantage of of low Earth orbit communications relative to to geosynchronous is because the orbits are lower the the transit time from ground to space and back is shorter and so latency is less, which is, you know, that's a desirable feature of communications links. But not all traffic is latency sensitive. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the internet traffic, only a small fraction is. So, so the thing that we're really interested in is providing uh, broadband services that are scalable and, and are good. And one of the ways to do that is to combine Leo and Geo uh, orbits in a single, uh, let's say, in a single user terminal and in a single overall system, and so that's one of the reasons that we're interested in, in Leo, and we're obviously we're interested in doing it the most economically and, and in a way that is safe and sustainable. So that's why we've been working uh, to understand this problem to make sure that we understand what the 
orbital debris problem is, what the failure modes would be, what the regulations should be, how to meet them uh, by making reliable satellites. And then for us, it's, okay, how do we make a large amount of economical bandwidth? And what we've been focusing on is coming up with payloads that are very, very uh, high capacity, just like we've been doing at the geosatellite space. And so if we have a payload that has 10 times the throughput of another satellite, we can achieve the same amount of bandwidth in space with one-tenth the satellites. That's the basic idea. Okay. Well, yeah, I think that whole topic of, you know, the bandwidth economics and how you achieve that with, uh, you know, with a combination of, of different satellites would be a great topic for another podcast, but I know it's, it's a fairly complicated one. So uh, thanks so much for your time today talking about uh, space pollution. I think it uh, really helped, uh, helped, you know, us get a, a good understanding of what that issue is and, and how we can address it. Good. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Viasat Podcast. If you know someone you think would be interested in what you've heard on this episode, please share. You can always find the latest episode on our blog at corpblog.viasat.com. And you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts.